This episode of the Doctors of Running podcast is sponsored by our friends at Running Warehouse. With the introduction of super foams and carbon plates, it's never been more fun to tackle the trails. The Nike Ultrafly hit shelves recently, giving runners a chance to take the tried-and-true ZoomX midsole foam off the road and onto the trails for long distances. In our chief editor Matt Klein's review of the shoe, he says those wanting ZoomX foam with a plate that feels comfortable at both easy and up-tempo paces will enjoy the Ultrafly. The Ultra Marathon community should be excited that they have a super shoe designed for them. Not to be outdone, Hoka's Tecton X2, New Balance's Super Comp Trail, and Saucony's Endorphin Rift offer excellent alternatives that each have their own strengths. Find reviews on all four Super Trail shoes at Doctors of Running and head over to runningwarehouse.com to shop today. the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science of the stuff we're putting on our feet. I'm Andrea Myers, and today we have two very special guests with us, Dr. Liz Herman and Dr. Jared Pastoya. Dr. Herman and Dr. Pastoya are naturopathic physicians here in Bethel, Connecticut. I've known Dr. Herman for several years. We had the great opportunity to work together for a while. Um, and Dr. Pastoya is a new addition to the clinic, and it's been exciting getting to know him over the past few weeks. Um, so we have Dr. Herman and Dr. Pastoya here to talk about blood work. We hear so much on social media and in articles about getting regular blood work for us as endurance athletes. And I think there's so much confusion about what blood values mean and why do I need to get all of this extra testing? Why can't my primary care doctor just do my normal blood work? Why do I need something extra? So I asked Dr. Herman and Dr. Pastoya to come on to kind of help us understand a little bit better what blood values are, what they mean, and what's important for us as runners. So just to introduce Dr. Herman and Dr. Pastoya, Dr. Herman is the owner and director of Bethel Naturopathic Medical. She's owned it since 2006, which is awesome. She is the former president <laughs> of the Connecticut Naturopathic Association, and she's also served as a supervising physician for students at the University of Bridgeport School of Naturopathic Medicine here in Connecticut. Dr. Pastoya is an attending physician at Bethel Naturopathic Medical, and he has a background in nutrition, fitness training, and health coaching. He's also an author. He wrote a book called In Pursuit of Health, and he also is an author for Healthline and other publications. So welcome, Dr. Herman and Dr. Pastoya. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on. Thank you. And Glad to be here. Yes. Thank you, guys. And I just wanted to give you guys a few minutes to tell our listeners a little bit about each of you, your backgrounds, um, what you like to do for exercise. So let's start with Dr. Herman. Hi. Um, thank you. Um, really just, uh, I graduated naturopathic school in 1999 and immediately started my own practice, um, my bachelor's degree is actually in exercise science, and I always thought I was going to be an athletic trainer. Um, and oddly enough, I went in a direction where afterwards I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. Um, but then life changed, and I wound up being a naturopathic physician, but I was always interested in combining science and exercise. That was always two of my favorite loves. 
And uh, being able to be a naturopathic physician allowed me to do that. Uh, I love exercise. I love everything about it. I love the way it makes you feel. Um, I love all different types of exercise, whether it's walking. Well, for me, it'd be jogging, slow jogging. That's still um, running. But um, not running. <laughs> You're a runner. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Swimming, yoga, um, you know, Pilates, weightlifting, anything I could do, it would, you know, I just loved it. So for me to be able to get to do a podcast where I bring two of my loves together is wonderful. So thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And Dr. Pastoya, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Yeah. For the first half of my life, it's it was involved with um, just getting acquainted with health in general, um, just learning various principles of health and lifestyle medicine and strategies that I can use just to keep myself healthy. Um, and so naturally, I just kind of found my way into uh, fitness training as well after kind of getting acquainted with nutrition. And I became a uh, ESA certified fitness trainer for about five years. And I was doing all kinds of exercise and activity at that time and was taking clients and just kind of working on my own and uh, and really started to study, you know, some of the specifics of exercise science with some dabbling in strength and conditioning and that sort of information. And, um, you know, then medical school happened. And because of the workload, you kind of have to put your exercise pursuits on the side and so, you know, me, I've always been trying to, um, you know, gain more muscle and lift stronger and heavier and whatnot. And so when you're in school, you just don't have any endurance. And this kind of ties in a little bit with today. No endurance, you know, no ability to really push yourself at all. And so you're just like, ah, the heck with it. I'm just going to, you know, succumb to being sedentary. And, um, and, you know, and recently have just been getting reacquainted with exercise again and, um, you know, on the strength and conditioning side, but previously some experience with endurance and running as well. So uh, exercise is definitely a major interest. And I've had some uh, patients, if we get time to discuss some, you know, young athletes who are endurance runners that I've been able to help out and listen to their stories and whatnot. So uh, the timing is very relevant. That's great. And you're right. It's never too late to go from a sedentary period to getting back to being more active. So I'm glad that you're finding more time to get back to what you love. The gods have blessed me. They so, give me another opportunity. <laughs> that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to our subjective. So this is for our listeners. So what changes have you made, if any, to your diet that has improved your running? Um, you can leave us a comment on YouTube. You can send us an email at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com. Leave us a comment or send us a message on social media, Facebook, Instagram. We want to hear how diet has changed your running performance, if it has. So we're going to move on to the main segment. So like I said, the whole purpose of this podcast is for us to learn more about why we should get regular blood work, what we should be looking for, what those values mean. So first of all, why do doctors order annual blood work as part of yearly physical? What's the point of it? Well, really it's for to check different blood biomarkers and gain an insight into an athlete's nutritional and physiological status that could really help in preventing overtraining, 
illness and injury. And are there different blood markers that runners or endurance athletes should have looked at compared to the general population? Because, you know, when I go to my primary care doctor, they don't order the same blood work that like you've ordered for me, Dr. Herman, it's much less extensive. So what are some additional tests or markers that you might look for if your patient is an endurance athlete as compared to just an everyday person? I mean, definitely just uh, in addition to your comprehensive metabolic and your CBC, which looks at red blood cells and hemoglobin and hematocrit levels, we would want to definitely check iron levels, calcium levels, vitamin D levels, um, even vitamin B12 and folic acid levels, iodine levels. Um, Sometimes we even go into looking at insulin levels, hemoglobin A1Cs, um, just to even see how somebody might be utilizing glucose um, if they have a problem with that, Um, because even athletes can have other health conditions that might increase their need for different types of nutrients. And... um, you know, even we can even take a look at creatinine kinase, for example, which, you know, especially in endurance athletes and training, you might want to look at muscle breakdown and that might affect a runner and how much they can run or if they need to recover, uh, have a greater deal of recovery time. So we can look at these biomarkers and see if there's anything that nutritionally we might need to do either through like plant-based medicines, supplementation, or with food. Okay. And Dr. Pastoya, what are some common issues that you see in your endurance athlete patients? Like Dr. Herman mentioned abnormal glucose levels. If somebody's glucose levels were off, what symptoms might they come in uh, complaining to you about? I'd say that they'd probably be tired. And, you know, when, when they're trying to perform or going to run, they may fatigue easily. And it's, it's not that complicated, right? You just, you don't have enough blood sugar. So there's not enough fuel for your cells. And so it, when there's not enough fuel, it's just these sort of systemic symptoms that you'll get. I think just being fatigued, maybe even some dizziness you might see as well, especially during when you're trying to exert yourself on those runs. I like that you brought up fatigue because it reminds me of one of my friends who is a, you know, decades long endurance athlete. And he went to his doctor and he said, you know, I just don't feel the same as I used to. I am not as fast on, you know, these rides that I do. I think something's wrong. And this is a person who, you know, at age 50 or 60 was still regularly doing 100 mile bike rides. And his doctor told him, well, nothing's wrong with you. Look at what you're still able to do. But for him, he knew that his performance wasn't normal. And I think it can be hard sometimes to for athletes to have those discussions with their doctors, especially if their doctors don't really understand the type of training they're doing. As exactly. An, as an athlete, we're really in tune with our bodies and we can tell when something's off. So one, if you know something's off, They should go to their doctor, right? But what should they do if their doctor kind of blows them off? Like, oh, you're fine. You can still ride 100 miles. Most people can't do that. How would you suggest suggest somebody handle that? So one, find yourself a naturopathic physician (laughs) (laughs) 
And or you could always find a MD who specializes in sports medicine, Mm -hmm. who would understand the specific nutritional requirements and supplementation for the sport that you're involved in. Yeah, I think that's a very good suggestion. Um, so you you had mentioned Dr. Herman creatine kinase and how that can indicate levels of muscle damage. And it is normal after like a hard workout or let's say a marathon for creatine kinase levels to be elevated, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody is getting their regular, you know, yearly or, you know, every six months blood work, should they do that blood work? two days after a big race or should they wait a little bit? I would say to do it. Um, Also, somebody who is already training and the gentleman that you were describing who is doing, what, 50, 60, 100 miles uh, a week, you know, that's intense training. Um, I would actually do that on a person initially to see what their their walking in with basically that kind of baseline CK level and Mm -hmm. see if they are already experiencing muscle breakdown because then you can incorporate into whether it's their food or through supplementation to actually improve that. And somebody who is an older individual, unfortunately, does need more time to recover. So it might be a combination of longer recovery time, plus different types of uh, nutrients, uh, protein, calcium, B12, you know, iron levels, even for men. Um, and, uh, and then doing that again after a competition mm-hmm. and do sense. a comparison study. And can you just briefly, Dr. Pistoia, explain what creatine kinase is and why it might be elevated if somebody's experiencing muscle breakdown? So we throw around these terms and, you know, the everyday person has no idea what they mean. So I'm hoping to kind of help people understand what all of those terms on their blood work results mean. Sure. Yeah. So creatine kinase basically um, helps your muscles produce energy. So that's just kind of the simplest way that I can define it. And so if you're an endurance athlete or really any athlete, um, your muscles need more energy constantly. So they're going to be using more creatine and are requiring more creatine as well. <clears throat> that's why for a lot of athletes it's, um, who are vegetarians, it can be sometimes difficult to meet energy demands. It's not just because of nutrients lacking, but also um, compounds like creatine, which are naturally more in abundant in the muscle tissues of animals, right? That's because that's where a lot of times they're being utilized. So creatine kinase is basically just an enzyme that um, will allow the, will extract the energy from the creatine itself. Great. Thank you so much for explaining that. Um, so in your practices, what are the most common abnormal blood work findings in runners or endurance athletes? Um what I have found is usually their iron, their ferritin, their B12, <laughs> a lot of times will wind up being um, low. Or if they're having a lot of inflammation, I could see ferritin being actually elevated. Um, so that's something that I see. Sometimes I'll see hypoglycemia, um, where initially we do a glucose test 
and I see that they have too low glucose um, and they're not replenishing it quick enough. Um, sometimes their calcium levels might be low as well as their vitamin D. So those are, for me, the majority of the time that I'll test an athlete and I'll find those levels. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to get into more details about some of those specific blood markers in a minute. Um, Dr. Pistoia, do males and females require different types of tests? And if so, what are those tests and why are they different? Um, Not necessarily. I mean, it really depends on how old you are, especially for, well, I guess it really doesn't make a difference between men and women, but obviously, you know, around when menopause is kind of starting, if you're still very active at that time, you're having changes in hormones, right? So your estrogen is withdrawing a little bit, you're not producing as much, and that can result in symptoms like fatigue. So it becomes a game at that point of, okay, well, you know, your levels, you're you're not anemic, you know, you're eating enough calories, you have enough, uh, high enough blood sugar. So why could it be that you're tired? And so then we might look at hormones. And so, you know, your basic estrogen and progesterone labs for women. And then for men who, you know, also experience a kind of an unofficial term called andropause, which is just the reverse of the um, slow decline in testosterone as men get older. In that case, it may be worthwhile to check testosterone levels. So I would say the biggest thing that would indicate a the need for hormone testing would probably be energy levels. Um, that's a, a common reason that a lot of people, middle-aged people will come in and say, you know, I just don't have the energy and you know, nothing really changed specifically in my life. And in that case, okay, well, let's look at some of the sex hormones. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit later because I want to talk about what can be done if hormone levels are abnormal. And depending on the level of athlete you're talking about, you can't always supplement with testosterone because that's against um, federation rules and you can get in big trouble for taking exogenous testosterone, whether you're male or female. Um, so what are some other options for people who have to follow um, federation rules for addressing hormone imbalances? But we'll save that for later in the episode. Um, Just in general, if someone's blood work is abnormal, what are like the categories of what can be done about it? You're you're both already touched on it a little bit, but let's say I get blood work done and my ferritin's low, my iron's low, vitamin D's low. What is there to do? So most often... You know, usually like a general multivitamin is suggested. But the thing is, is that with athletes having such a higher demand for nutrients to repair and recover, to support healthy immune function, especially after um, training really hard or having multiple competitions, is that you're going to want to provide more than what you would see in a multiple vitamin. And so that might be where you need to provide an additional iron, let's say, and an iron with B12 and folic acid in it. Um, you know, you might need to look at, well, that's a tangent, but I was going to go off on like digestive enzymes and all this. <laughs> oh, stuff we and love tangents. Cleaves, cleaves <laughs> out of, you know, all these, uh, 
you know, from your hydrochloric acid in your stomach. Anyway, so, um, but getting <laughs> No, back. please go down that tangent, <laughs> actually, because I, th- I think a lot of people think that things like this are straightforward. You're deficient in this, you take this, and then it's taken care of, but it's not. Right. It depends on absorption, right? So could you talk a little bit about digestive enzymes and cofactors and how our bodies actually absorb and utilize these nutrients? Yes, yes. So... Um, depending upon, you know, the person's health, age, uh, medications that they might already be taking could affect absorption of nutrients in the small intestinal tract. And so, um, well, usually digest- digestion happens in the mouth first and then in the stomach. Um, and when it gets to the stomach, whether, you know, you're taking, really if you're eating your foods and you're chewing well, uh, what your body will do is that with the hydrochloric acid that's in the stomach, it kind of pulls apart the components, the nutrient components from your food, your B12, your calcium, your folic acid, whatever it is, your iron. And then with these little finger-like projections that are lining your intestinal tract, it kind of grabs onto these pieces and pulls it into your bloodstream and then takes it down to where it needs to go to whatever tissue or organ it's trying to either um, uh, support, nourish, or repair. And so if for whatever reason the uh, amount of acid in your stomach is low, you have a low volume or if it's diluted for any reason, if it's neutralized for any region, reason, which is why a lot of times when people are on, and I believe people are more familiar with this uh, example if they're on anti antacids, you know, your your Nexium, your Prevacid, your Prilosec, your Prantoprazole, Omeprazole, um, or even your uh, Tums which is just simply calcium, it actually neutralizes or shuts down the pumps that put out the acid necessary to break down your foods to get all these components that you can pull out that you can utilize. So uh, oftentimes uh, we need to, naturopathic physicians are, are very big about digestive enzymes and being able to break down your foods appropriately in order to grab onto those nutrients. That's great. Thank you so much for uh, mentioning that. Um, so let's move on to probably the most common, in my mind, it might not be the most common that you see, um, blood marker deficiency that runners may experience, which is anemia. So first of all, Dr. Pistoia, can you just Tell us what it means to be anemic, and are there different things that can cause anemia? Sure. So anemia basically means that you either don't have enough red blood cells or enough hemoglobin, and hemoglobin essentially just carries oxygen in the red blood cell. So the red blood cell needs hemoglobin to actually um, grab that oxygen from the lungs. So you're breathing in air, the blood's going to your lungs, and then kind of interfacing with your red blood cells. And so that's basically it. It's not enough red blood cells or not enough hemoglobin. And so if that's the case, then you don't have enough oxygen, right? So your cells are kind of a little bit starved of oxygen. And so, yes, there can be different causes. Um, It depends on 
what's going on with the person. But most commonly, this is probably, you know, next question, but iron deficiency anemia is the most common reason why people become anemic, just having an iron deficiency. Okay. And then if someone has an iron deficiency, what would you see in their blood work to suggest that? And what markers would you specifically look at for that? So you would at first start with just a regular blood count, a CBC. And on the CBC, you would likely see low hemoglobin or even low hematocrit. And the hematocrit is essentially the proportion of your blood that's made up of red blood cells. So your blood consists of red blood cells, right, white blood cells, which is your immune system, and also just a liquid substance called plasma. And so... um, the hematocrit is just a measurement of how much red blood cells percentage-wise are in that entire blood sample. So, which makes sense, right? Because if you have anemia and you look at hematocrit, well, okay, the hematocrit's probably low because there's just not, not enough red blood cells or the hemoglobin's too low. So that's the first thing that you would see. Um, and then what you might do from there is just follow up with an iron panel. And so we, we can actually check, okay, how much iron is actively in your blood right now and also how much iron is does your body have in storage. And so we can directly measure those levels. So if someone has iron deficiency anemia, it's very obvious your iron just comes up as low. And so sometimes it can be that your blood iron itself is too low or you have um, just low storage or both. So it can be all those things depending on um, how deficient you are. Okay. And Dr. Herman, would you consider the specific numbers for hemoglobin and hematocrit to be different for, say, somebody who's running a marathon compared to just a sedentary person? Would you want to see hemoglobin and hematocrit numbers a little bit higher than what, say, Quest considers to be the cutoff for low? Or do you use the same zones? Yes. I mean, there's the difference between what's normal meaning that it's within the range of that specific lab that you're going through. And then there's optimal ranges, which are more narrow within that normal range. And so when somebody's an athlete and we know that they're needing more nutrients and supplementation, I like to see them up a little higher towards that higher portion of that range because then they have the necessary nutrients in order to perform their sport. And so when it comes to, uh, you know, red blood cell count, you may want to see it closer to, you know, over a four, you know, with the um, hematocrit uh, and uh, hemoglobin, you know, you're going to want to see it on the top end. Same thing with iron. Um, even though, you know, you want it to be in range because there's obviously issues if something is either too low or too high, but, you know, getting more towards the top end of those normal ranges can be very helpful. And the same thing with ferritin so that you know that the, that the athlete does have something in reserve for, especially during competition. Right. And okay. I'm glad you brought up ferritin because we, We all talk about it in the running community, and I think people kind of understand what it is. But what is it specifically? Why does it matter when it comes to anemia? And what is its relationship to hemoglobin and hematocrit? Oh, did you want to take this, Dr. Pastor? Sure, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Okay. 
Uh, so ferritin is basically a protein that stores iron. So you think of it as just a container for iron, basically. So when you eat food and get iron from your food, your body will use whatever it needs to in your cell. And then the ferritin will come and just say, hey, let me grab this and store that for later. And it kind of just lives inside of your cells for the most part. And when your iron is low, just like if your checking account is low, you'll draw on your savings, which is your ferritin. And so it's just think of it as like an iron savings account, basically. And uh, when you need more iron, say, okay, let me have some of that stored iron. And I think that it's usually stored in uh, skeletal muscle and the liver stores iron, I believe, and some other areas too, like the spleen. But it's mostly inside your cells, just kind of ready to be released as needed. Okay. I love that analogy, your iron savings account. I'll remember (laughs) that one. So if somebody has normal hemoglobin and hematocrit, but their ferritin's low, what does that mean? And are there different levels of low ferritin? Like, would you want to see ferritin levels that are higher than like the normal zone, just like what Dr. Herman said? What's optimal ferritin versus what's normal ferritin? Yeah, so you can have uh, normal hemoglobin hematocrit, but your ferritin is low, right? That's fairly common. Um, it, it just means that your um, your blood your red blood cell count is fine, but your iron savings are low, right? So your savings account is low, and so you're probably eating enough iron on a regular basis to cover your um, your immediate needs, but you're not eating in excess to where you can replenish that storage. So over time, it could lead to anemia especially if you're doing more than usual or you're eating less than usual. And so whatever source of iron you're getting is not replenishing your stores. Um, So I think the value is somewhere like below 20 nanograms per milliliter is the unit. Um, But, you know, for if you're lower than that, then you then for the average person, you know, that would be considered low. But for an athlete, especially an endurance athlete, you probably want to be somewhere between 40 and 50 pretty regularly nanograms per milliliter just in case uh, you're not really getting enough iron from your diet you always want to have some storage there for you just because it's so important that's great and again iron savings account makes perfect sense did you have something to add i did because oftentimes we'll also see low like normal red blood cells normal hemoglobin hematocrit and we'll even see the red blood cell diameter with normal we'll still see ferritin low usually i see that with women who are still having periods regular periods and so for athletes who are having periods um and should there be significant flow we could see that and so during those times to fortify that athlete even more so with nutrients, foods, dark green leafy vegetables, um, molasses, raisins, anything uh, that's going to replenish uh, that blood, basically blood loss. Mm -hmm. So when would a woman who's menstruating want to increase their iron? Like at what point in their cycle? Right. So usually right before their period is a really good time. And then during their period and just that week after. So usually you get about two weeks where you're really trying to build up a little reserve. Then you have your period and then you build back up again. Okay, great. That's a that's a great suggestion. Um, so you mentioned a few foods that are iron rich. Could you just go over those again? So if somebody has low ferritin or low blood iron, what foods should they focus on eating to try to get those levels up? And 
like you had mentioned earlier about absorption, there are certain foods or vitamins that help with iron absorption, right? So what would those foods or compounds be? So one thing that really helps to absorb iron is vitamin C. So pairing foods that are iron rich with foods that have high vitamin C levels are perfect. So if you're having, let's say a steak, you can have a salad with like a lemon vinaigrette. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're getting the vitamin C, you're getting the iron, and that food combining is going to help increase the absorption. Um, any of your dark green leafy vegetables are going to be a combination of iron and vitamin C. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be good. Um, if you're doing things where uh, even and not everybody likes molasses, but it's a great source of iron, actually. <laughs> and so using that in shakes or smoothies, uh, adding that in. And also, you know, if you're going to have any kind of, uh, you know, meal, you could always, th- you know, like oatmeal, throw some raisins on it. Um, then you'll get your iron up. Mm-hmm. And now there are two different types of food sources of iron, right? Heme and non-heme. And one has better absorption than others. So Dr. Pastoya, could you tell us the difference between the two and which one absorbs a little bit better? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so heme iron typically comes from uh, animal products. And the non-heme iron usually is from the plant-based sources. So plants are a little bit different, right? Than well, they're a lot different than us. They they can't move. They can't detach themselves. They don't have uh, flesh. They don't have organs in the way that we have organs. So what's interesting about plants is that um, they do have kind of their own blood. Uh, you can think of it as a plant blood. Um, at the center of the what would be their hemoglobin instead of iron is actually magnesium. So they're kind of oriented a little bit differently. Um, but they do use iron as well. So not to get too off topic, but non-heme iron uh, is from usually plant sources and it's less absorbable than heme iron. And the reason is because the way that it's presented to the body is kind of not in an optimal, easy to access form. So the reason why um, you know eating meats is a little bit easier to obtain iron is because it's already packaged in the way that's deliverable to your body. It's already um, where it needs to be, essentially. So it's just a lot easier for your body to uh, grab that heme from the the meat versus the plants. It's not to say that you're not going to absorb any from plant-based diets. So it's just a difference between the source, essentially, that creates um, absorption differences. Okay. Thank you. That makes perfect sense. Um, And then finally, on the topic of anemia and iron, if somebody just can't get enough iron from their diet and their doctor determines that they need a supplement, what options are out there? Uh, Dr. Herman had mentioned earlier that it's important to have an iron supplement that contains a couple of B vitamins. So what should people look for? Is there a particular supplement that you both recommend to your patients? Um, Dr. Herman, can you go first? Absolutely. So uh, the form of iron that I really like is iron bisglycinate. I find that it's the most gentle on your stomach and the least likely to cause any type of constipation. Um, uh, so any form of iron bisglycinate, any, anything that's clean doesn't have any 
heavy metals, toxins, usually on the bottle, you'll see that they uh, will state that, that there's no PCBs, there's no plastics, there's no nothing that's like a contaminant, there's no additives, preservatives. Um, you know, there are several companies that are out there that are really great. I do like to pair it with vitamin C. Um, I like vitamin C from tapioca sources. That tends to be the least allergic reaction one that people can utilize. Uh, I like to do the iron with uh, vitamin B12, like a methylated form of B12 and methylated form of folic acid to also help with increasing red blood cells um, and overcoming anemia. And um, yeah, that would be probably what I would start with. Great. Dr. Pistoia, do you have anything to add on your uh, preferred iron supplements? I actually don't prescribe them very often. Usually what I'll tell Mm -hmm. people is um, really look for the foods that have iron, that are iron rich and include those in your diet. And not only is that going to provide you more iron, but it's also going to provide you additional nutrients as well. So that's my preferred method for uh, supplementing iron, so to speak. And I'll even tell people if if they're not strict vegetarians, but they do better as an athlete on a plant-based diet, I usually say, well, consider having some source of iron once a week and consider that to be your supplement. So if it's a piece of red meat or it's some oysters or something, I prefer to prescribe foods in that sense. I think that it just works better and, and people are like, I don't want to take any capsules. I'm already taking too many capsules. So that's what I usually default to. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, One more question about iron. Sorry, I said that was the last one. But uh, (laughs) another way that people sometimes try to get iron in their diets is by cooking with a particular pan that has iron in it. Is that a good way to increase your iron intake? Um, If people are going to do that, do you have any tips for them? I think it's a good way to to get more iron. Um, Yeah. It is an interesting way to get iron, that's for sure. But it, it's, it has been shown to increase your iron levels. So if you're using cast iron cookware for a long time, so cast iron cookware, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's literally just like 100% iron a lot of, in a lot of cases. It's super heavy and like annoying to cook with sometimes. But if you like cast iron cookware, uh, if you use it for a long time, you can get some, some side effects of just having too much iron. So it definitely does increase your iron levels. Um, I'm not sure if there's any kind of research out there on there's probably at least a few articles about, you know, um, iron people's iron levels and associations with how often they're using iron cookware. So I think it's probably something that can help you a little bit. I just wanted to add something to that. So oftentimes I would say that if you're going to be cooking with cast iron or even taking I would say mostly with cast iron is that if it's a woman who is no longer menstruating and not all men, but a good portion of men don't need that extra iron. And so what can happen though, is that they can build up excessive iron and we could see that in blood work. And so I think it's a fine line that you walk between, uh, Foods that are iron rich, your ability to absorb the iron and nutrients from those foods, and then going ahead and supplementing. 
So I think that definitely working with a doctor who is very savvy with blood tests in relation to an athlete and their specific needs and being able to interpret those test results is going to be important because you really wouldn't want to, like Dr. Pastoya said, you don't want to accumulate too much iron because then you wind up having other issues that you don't want as, as an athlete. Right. Yeah. Hemo, hemochromatosis, right? Yeah. That's the technical term. Yeah. And that can cause problems with your liver, kidneys, mm-hmm. affects muscle function. So just like everything else, there's always a medium. Um, you don't want too little and you don't want too much. And iron is definitely one of those things. Yes. All right. So we're going to move on to the next blood marker that I think is commonly affected in endurance athletes, and that is calcium. So we all know that calcium is important for our bones, but I don't think everyone really understands why. So Dr. Herman, can you tell us why calcium is important for bone health? Absolutely. Um, Calcium actually helps your body create bone cells that will eventually lay down within the matrix of your bones themselves. And so, um, you know, it also helps with uh, muscle contraction. Um, It actually can help break down fats and use them for energy. Um, It can help with... um, you know, creating and well, controlling uh, the creation of adenosine triphosphate. So there's a lot of physiological pathways that calcium is involved with. Mm-hmm. And bone, I think a lot of people think that bone is just this static structure, but it's not. It's constantly being built up and broken down. And optimal calcium levels are important for maintaining that balance of you don't want more bone breakdown than build up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so you want to make sure that somebody is testing for calcium and usually through a general blood test, they're testing either serum or plasma calcium, which is a nice marker. Um, but there's also calcium in, um, your T cells that actually could, uh, potentially find out if you're needing more than what is showing up in a regular blood test through like Quest or LabCorp. Um, So, but dietary wise, usually you want your calcium to keep like strong bones and to prevent like stress fractures from happening, helping with repairing bone. Oftentimes you need about 1500 milligrams a day and that's for both men and women. Um, Usually our need for calcium goes up as we get older. So older athletes need to really make sure that they're getting enough calcium and that they're absorbing it. Um, And that when you do take calcium, that you're only taking calcium in small amounts because the body can only absorb maybe about four or 500 milligrams of calcium at a time. So if you're taking all of that calcium at one time, you're going to, your body's getting rid of it because it just can't uptake it all at once and to take it with food so that the digestion of the food helps with breaking down the calcium that you just took in. And usually with different calcium forms, uh, you know, the suggestion is to do more of like a calcium carbonate 
but that's a really hard form to digest sometimes. And so calcium citrate or calcium orotate or lactate can be an easier form for the body to digest and break down. And why is why are calcium supplements always paired with vitamin D? Does it play a role in calcium absorption? Yes, it does actually. So vitamin D is a, vitamin D is a hormone, right? So it's kind of a misnomer that we call it a vitamin. Um, a vitamin, when we refer to a vitamin, we, we really think more of a compound that's needed to uh, make some chemical reaction in the body. So if we're trying to extract nutrients from food, we need B vitamins to do that for us. So we need those physical compounds to come in and catalyze those reactions. Hormones are actually more to do with information, and they're kind of like messenger molecules. So when a hormone's released, it tells the body to do something. And so vitamin D, for example, is kind of like uh, what orchestrates the calcium in the body. So the way that calcium is moved and stored and utilized in the body is orchestrated by vitamin D. So it's kind of like the conductor, right, in an orchestra. And it's telling it, you have to do this specific thing, go to this specific place. And so um, it's it's not so easy as just like, oh, the calcium comes in and it knows where to go. The body knows how to use it. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. So taking it together with vitamin D, um, I guess it would be kind of theoretically that the vitamin D would ensure that the calcium is, is going to the right place, which is inside your bones, because it can just be stored in your arteries as well. And that's something that's fairly common as we'll see um, calcification, it's called, in the arteries. And so there are some thoughts of that, well, maybe it's from calcium supplements, just taking straight up high doses of calcium. And I think that there's some sense to that because if, if it's the body doesn't do anything with it, then instead of, you know, if you're going to go to the bathroom, pee it out or poop it out, your body may just hold on to it, whatever is a convenient place to store it. And so that can lead to issues down the road. So the bottom line is that taking it with vitamin D is thought to uh, have a better effect in terms of how the the calcium is being utilized. Um, Regarding vitamin D, of course, our bodies make vitamin D when our skin is exposed to the sun. But, you know, for those of us living in Connecticut, we don't always get all that sun exposure year round. So... Does basically everybody need to supplement with vitamin D? Are people able to get enough vitamin D through food alone? Should people change their vitamin D supplementation based on the season? Um, What are your thoughts and recommendations regarding that? Yes, usually what I do with athletes is I test them twice a year. Mm -hmm. I test them in the wintertime and I test them in the summertime and I adjust. So usually, especially up here in the Northeast where we do find more deficiencies of vitamin D, um, I would uh, more often than not, the levels would be such that 5,000 international units per day would be appropriate. And then dropping them down in the summertime to about 1,000, 2,000 international units because now they're spending more time outside with more skin exposure and they're making and converting more vitamin D in the skin. So they're less likely to need that. But definitely in the wintertime, bumping it up. And is there an issue with taking too much vitamin D or too much calcium? Um, Yeah, there's definitely issues with both. So especially with vitamin D um, and really any fat-soluble vitamin. So fat-soluble vitamins just means that 
uh, it basically is dissolved in fat. So a lot of times you'll see vitamin D comes in those capsules, those gel capsules with like some kind of oil to carry it. And um, the reason that there's an issue with fat-soluble vitamins is because our body will, uh, will store the excess in our fat. And so if we have too much vitamin D, it's basically toxic to the body. And so I don't know the specific symptoms of it, but there's probably various systemic symptoms. Um, I remember this. Do you remember the specific name, Dr. Herman, of um, too much vitamin C? It's something toxicosis or one of those. Vitamin toxicosis? Yeah, vitamin D toxicosis or something like that. Yeah. Yes. So So that basically it's just, um, you know, winding up now that it's uh, being stored in organs and your body's not able to filter it out quick enough. And so it could actually damage liver, kidneys, and obviously you don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> and with calcium, um, I mean, I don't know if, if the, the studies show this specifically, but my hunch is that with high dose calcium, you're, you can create arterial calcifications. And so that can lead to hardening of the arteries and worsen the kind of natural stiffening that we see with aging. Um, but you can also kind of alter the micro environment of your stomach too. That's really more so with the Tums and the calcium that's designed to to act in the stomach. And so initially it may help you, but then down the road you may have issues with the acid and base balance in your stomach just from taking too much calcium long term. Absolutely. If you're working with a runner, let's say someone who's training for a marathon, what are you looking for in terms of their blood calcium levels? What would be an optimum level for that athlete? I like for athletes to have a calcium level of about, I would say, 9, 9.2. You know, I find that when, uh, you know, I have an athlete that has that level, we can see that uh, their bones are being supported, their heart's being supported. Um, It's actually helping uh, use up different sources of energy in the body that's going to make them uh, a better endurance athlete. So if you have somebody whose values are low, what foods do you recommend for people to get their calcium levels up? Um, so I actually like people to, um, you know, definitely take in their proteins because there's calcium in that. Um, your dark green leafy vegetables, again, will have calcium. Um, even um like black sesame seeds, sprinkling that over your foods is a great source of calcium. Um, even for women, red raspberry leaf tea is a great source of calcium and oat straw. What is oat straw? I don't think I've ever had that. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a plant and, um, you know, it's a great source of calcium. Um, it's very nourishing for the body over kind of an overall tonic. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Hmm. Is it, how would you prepare it or eat it? Oh, go ahead, Dr. Pistoia. What were you going to say? It's also called Avena Sativa in the herbal medicine world. Oh, okay. It's, it's been used yeah, for a long I've, time. I've actually heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you know the Latin name and not the regular name. I'm surprised. <laughs> I do. <I'm laughs> Usually it's all the way around. Um, <laughs> if somebody needs, so if foods aren't enough to get someone's blood calcium levels up, what kind of calcium supplement would you recommend? I know Dr. Herman mentioned that there are a few kinds and one is a little bit easier to absorb, but others are a little bit gentler on the stomach. So what's your 
like what's the most common one that you're recommending to your patients? Um, I'd say it's probably a combination of hydroxyapatate calcium and probably uh, a calcium glycinate or a Tate combination. Okay. And then with a D? With vitamin D and I give mm. vitamin K too. Okay. And what does the K do in relation to those other two? So basically vitamin D helps the absorption of calcium. And the best way I could describe vitamin K is vitamin K kind of tells it where to go once it's in the body. Oh, okay. Awesome. So it's the additional uh, conductor in the orchestra to your yes, Dr. Exactly. Pistoia's. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dr. Pistoia, do you have a particular supplement that you prefer? Um, I, it's the same thing with iron. You know, I, I tend to shy away from giving the supplements. And a lot of times people come in, they're already taking a supplement and they're like, ah, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I'm, I'm not really noticing any differences. And so I usually go, okay, well, you know, what kind of exercises are you doing? Are you giving your bones any reason to hold on to more calcium? That's usually where I go with people. Um, but you know, it, it depends on everyone's individual needs. So I think what Dr. Herman said is probably, she probably has the best advice on which form to use when it comes to supplementation. Okay. All right. So we're going to move on to vitamin B12. So can you tell me, Dr. Pistoia, what functions B12 performs in the body? Yeah. So B12 is another, I mean, every vitamin is a critical vitamin, right? So B12 um, has a lot to do with red blood cell formation. So the way that red blood cells are formed in addition to iron also requires vitamin B12 as well. Um, Beyond that, it's also necessary for actually creating DNA. So it's like a really super critical function. Um, so the way that cells are kind of dividing and the information for the division of those cells requires DNA, which is just fundamental pieces of information in the body. And then also neurological functions. So people may be familiar with, um, you know, just having neurological issues from like vitamin B12 or, you know, vitamin B6 imbalances or something like that. And then like the other B vitamins, it also helps with uh, metabolism. So specifically with amino acids and fatty acids, just sort of breaking them down and extracting the active components from them. So if a runner was low in B12, what symptoms might they be having or how might it be affecting their performance? So definitely um, reduced endurance capabilities overall. And that's probably because if you're in a true deficiency you might have a what's called a megaloblastic anemia. And so megalo just meaning big. So they're just, instead of, um, in the case with iron, they usually the cell is a little bit smaller, I believe, without iron. With B12, it's actually bigger. So, and you can see that on a, on a lab. It just looks like a giant cell. And so um, that sort of anemia would also come with its fatigue. Uh, you may also have muscle weakness, or more neurological problems versus iron, where iron is more of your tire, you may have heart palpitations, you may be dizzy. This is more of a neurological type of thing. So like shakiness or dizziness or... Probably like a numbness or a tingling would be the big thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and just feeling sort of a weakness too, I would say would be the other thing. And are vegetarians or vegans at greater risk of a B12 deficiency? I would say so. And I would say about... of vegetarians and vegans 
probably aren't getting adequate nutrition. And that's because it's harder to get as much as an, as a vegetarian or vegan. And, and that's not because vegetables or, and fruits are inherently less nutrient dense than meats. It's just because it, at least in my experience, they tend to be eating more processed foods. So it's like they're you know, avoiding meats because of various reasons and that's fine. And there's advantages to that, but then they're kind of replacing some of it with the processed stuff. So yes. And then the concentrated sources of B12 are things like egg yolks and just muscle tissue itself from animals. So unless the foods are actually fortified with added B12, then it becomes harder to gain just organically, naturally occurring sources of the B12, which you'll get in the animal products. Are there any plant sources of B12 or just animal? I think I could be wrong about this, but I think that um, natto might be a source or that might be confusing with vitamin K2. Um, I'm actually not too sure. You know, I have to look at... Usually in fermented, like kombucha, you can find B vitamins in, but it might not be in a level that an athlete can uh, it'll be good and you could add to uh, but they still might need supplementation for it so in your fermented foods all right so good food sources of b12 would be meats eggs fermented foods yeah the egg yolk yeah well that's the most delicious part of it (laughs) (laughs) what is an egg without the yolk (laughs) Um, for an endurance athlete, what would what B12 levels would you look for in their blood work? Um, so usually on lab work, say through Quest, I believe their range is about 400 to 1,100 picograms per milliliter, um, which is normal. But I really like to see actually everybody, but definitely athletes, well above a 400 I like to see them around a 700. Um, I find that, uh, and research has shown that when you have levels that are about 400 and lower, actually, I think that Quest is even lower. I think it's like two or 300 to about 1100. And so research has shown that uh, when you have levels around a 400 or less, you can have neurological, psychological, and hematological issues. And so especially for the athlete, who's using up their nutrients at such a tremendous rate, I like to keep them up at around a 700. Okay, great. And I know there are different means of B12 supplementation. Some people get an injection. Some people take pills. Is one way better than the other? If your B12 is really low, is it better to get an injection from your doctor? or Absolutely. Okay. So why is that? Because what can happen is that, again, it goes back to uh, somebody's ability to absorb B12. But the other thing with B12 is in order for it to be absorbed properly, it first has to be methylated. And then it needs to pair up with something called intrinsic factor in in your body in order to absorb properly. So it needs these other chaperones in order to be taken up into your system. Otherwise, it's not getting there. And then getting an injection or an infusion would bypass the need for that, and it goes right into your system. And some people have a genetic issue where they don't methylate properly. Is that correct? That is correct. So if you have a MTHFR mutation, you're you're going to not be able or capable or 
you might be impaired in some way of methylating that cyanocobalamin in order to be able to be taken up into your system. And so definitely just you're basically jumping over that step and going right to a methylated form and not even bothering with just a plain cyanocobalamin. Okay. And how how would someone know that they have that genetic mutation? They would have to test for it, but that's a really expensive test. It's a genetic test. Mostly it's used for women who are trying to conceive. Otherwise, um, I think that the last time I... Somebody had to pay out of pocket for it. I think it was about $1,500 out of pocket for it. But you might be able to go through some of these um, genetic tests like 23andMe or I'm not plugging anything, but, you know, Mm -hmm. some of these other genetic uh, profiles from a lot of different companies and they Mm -hmm. might have that included in on what they test for. It probably costs less than if you go through a Yes, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Which is... Good in one way, but unfortunate in many others. Correct. So sometimes just giving a methylated form is the Mm -hmm. easiest thing to do. And is there anything wrong with someone who doesn't have that mutation taking a methylated form? No, not at all. So if someone just, anyone could take that and that would be a good supplement for them. Yes, unless of course there's some kind of underlying medical issue or there's mm-hmm. a contraindication with some kind of medication that they're taking. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right. So let's move on to our last topic today. There's When I was writing the outline for this episode, I came up with so many things I wanted to talk about. And then it's like, no, this is going to be a three-hour episode. <laughs> I better pare it down. But I did want to talk to you both about men's and women's health. Um, and you mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, testing for hormones. So... Absolutely. Just again, could you say, let's say you have a perimenopausal female runner. Are there hormone tests that you would run for her that you wouldn't run for someone who was, you know, 25 years old? Yes, absolutely. I would see how far along into perimenopause they were. So you're talking your FSH, your LH, estrogen, progesterone. I would even throw in testosterone. Um, you could uh, potentially do pregnenolone, which is kind of like the grandmother hormone of all of them, to see if there's anything that might be either the ratio of hormones to one another is not imbalanced. So definitely when it comes to um, estrogen, it's going to naturally over time decrease. So things like flaxseed oil, if you want to put that in shakes and smoothies, that's actually very helpful. It's, we're not going to see it on a blood test to elevate estrogen, but it's going to have estrogen-like effects. Even something like tofu, soy products are going to have an estrogen-like effect, but we will not see estrogen rise, or at least I've never seen it rise on a patient on a blood test. Okay. And what symptoms might somebody have if their estrogen levels are low? It's basically like the common menopausal symptoms, right? Right. You can have hot flashes. You could have mood swings. You can have problems sleeping, like insomnia. Um, Sometimes you could have brain fog, cognitive function. But in the athlete, what we see is that it's harder to put on muscle. 
you have you have a greater amount of fat, your body composition starts to change. So what we see is that weight starts to accumulate around the waist. You see uh, uh, definitely a decrease in muscle mass. And so that definitely can, uh, you know, winds up for the athlete, like poor performance. Okay. And along those lines, because as women go through the menopause transition, they tend to lose muscle mass and gain fat mass. What other dietary things might someone who's perimenopausal change to help preserve lean muscle mass? So you may want to go ahead and not eliminate, but reduce amount of carbohydrates, even though you have to be careful with that because you do need a certain amount of carbohydrates to, to perform. Um, so more uh, complex carbohydrates, you can eat more protein. Protein is going to be really important. As um, all athletes age, they need more protein, um, probably about 30 grams on average per meal, I would suggest, and then at least 20 to 30 grams of protein with each snack. And so doing things like that, um, doing more high-intensity interval training can be really helpful, and that can also help your hormones too. And so that kind of combination, allowing your body more time to recover and repair and rest all of that, getting to sleep on time, having a very good sleep hygiene will also help with hormones and help with body composition along with better eating habits and, and higher protein. Great. Those are all great tips. Thank you. And Dr. Pistoia, do male runners' dietary needs change as they age? And obviously men don't go through menopause, but you mentioned kind of the pseudo term that people use, andropause. So what does that mean? And do you recommend that male athletes as they enter their 50s and 60s or above change their diet at all? Usually um, when you get older, regardless of if you're male or female, what I've noticed in terms of trends uh, for athletes and also for just a layperson is you, you're you not working as much, right? So you may have some more boredom in your life. Like, what am I going to do every day? And so if, you know, running is one of those things that keeps you, um, you know, just entertained and it's something that you feel good. Um, it, it, so essentially what winds up happening is your diet becomes worse, right? Because you're more bored. So oh, I'll just have some chips or whatever it is. Or I'll just have, you know, this snack or whatever, or whatever it may be. We'll go out to eat more often. So you become less cognizant of what you're eating. And a lot of times you may not even realize that. So as you get older, it's important just to periodically take stock on what your diet is. So I wouldn't say that there's any specific changes like, oh, you should definitely be eating more of this, um, you know, maybe fiber, trying to just keep up with your fiber intake so you're not reaching for as many processed foods and you're actually getting um, just to support your overall health essentially. So I wouldn't say there's anything specifically that people should focus on. Um, so andropause refers to um, a natural decrease in testosterone as a man ages. And so that contrasts with something called hypogonadism, which is where the testes aren't actually aren't producing enough testosterone to the point where there's an actual pathology there. So with andropause, the testes seem to be working fine, but the testosterone is still low. 
And what that'll lead to is typically men will come in and the reason is because they can't get an erection or they can't maintain an erection and that's what brings them in. But behind that, there's also um, depression, brain fog, uh, symptoms that are actually similar to menopause, decreases in bone density, increases in body fat, and then also um, feeling weaker, just decreases in muscle size and strength as well. So those would be your main symptoms of andropause. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for differentiating between the two. Um, So thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners about blood testing, How maybe how frequently you would recommend it for distance runners, and anything else you would recommend just in general regarding sports nutrition? Yeah, I would say the one thing to keep in mind is not to – um, overcomplicate things. So what you got to remember when you're an athlete and you're running a lot, you're using up a lot of nutrients, right? That's as simple as it can be. So you have to, um, remind yourself that I'm constantly using up nutrients. So I need more nutrients. And so nutrition is super important just keeping that at the forefront of your brain and that it's not some mysterious reason why you're feeling fatigued, just like, Hey, you're not eating enough or you're not eating enough of the right foods. And so, it depends on how much you're running, but I would say, you know, every three months, if you have some competition coming up or a marathon coming up, you want to make sure that your levels are adequately loaded up to that event. So if it's your ferritin and it says your ferritin's low, okay, well, that'd be something that by the time you get to that marathon, that you want to have that resolved so that you have enough iron. Um, but if you're not really doing anything competitively, you don't have many marathons planned, then maybe every six months just to kind of check in on your basic markers would be a good uh, cadence to be in. Great. Thank you so much. And I, I love that. It really is just keep it simple. Sports nutrition can seem really complicated. And I think some uh, people on social media or some providers want it to seem complicated so that you rely on them, but it's really not that complicated. Make sure you're fueling enough. Make sure you're eating the right foods. Get tested often enough to make sure to head off any potential problems and, you know, keep running. Um, Unfortunately, we lost Dr. Herman. um, So thank you, Dr. Pistoia. And thanks to Dr. Herman for joining us. Uh, If you want to find Dr. Pistoia and Dr. Herman online, their clinic is called uh, Bethel Naturopathic Medical. We'll put the link to their website and social media in the show notes. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm